Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Backchat. If the Nature podcast is a hardback copy of the Oxford English Dictionary, then Backchat is an online message board full of unintelligible slang. This month, which scientific buzzwords get our journalists hot under the collar? What just happened to Europe's Mars probe? And what if government ministers got to suggest what courses universities can teach? I'm Kerry Smith and joining me in the studio in London, I have senior reporter Dan Cressy. Hello. I also have senior reporter Lizzie Gibney. Hello, Kerry. And editorials editor, I hope that's the right title, David Adam. Hello, so do I. (laughs) Now, coming up, the UK government is considering a new law that would shake up the way science is funded here and potentially allow more input from the government into how universities do what they do. We chat about the implications of that for the UK and similar scenarios elsewhere. The European Space Agency has lost touch with its Mars probe, What's the prognosis? What special magic fairy dust did NASA use to manage to land its rover? And why hasn't Europe got some of the same dust? And we'll also be synergising and benchmarking a few of our favourite scientific buzzwords a little bit later on. So stay tuned because we really are at the nexus of that, garnering a great deal of impact for our work in that field. Why not track our progress throughout the show, not just in that segment, by playing buzzword bingo along with us, flag any buzzwords that we accidentally use as you listen through with the hashtag Backchat buzzword on Twitter. Right, on with the show, and why not go to Mars first? Lizzie, Where? Um, what was supposed to happen there yesterday? So Europe, and actually together with the Russian space agency, Roscosmos, have got this mission called ExoMars, and it's a two-parter, and basically one part worked very well and one part didn't. So it was both an orbiter, which is going to start doing some exciting science from the end of next year, um, and that very successfully entered Martian orbit. Hooray. The big downside is that the Schiaparelli lander, which was supposed to be Europe's first successful Mars landing, um, it's also the first time they've given it a real shot as well, because there was Beagle 2 a few years ago, which was operated by ESA, but done on a very tight budget and led by a British team. And so it very much was a test, but they also very much hoped that it would land successfully. And in fact, um, as I put in my story, when one of the guys in the mission control was interviewed ahead of the time, ahead of landing, he said, Rather than six minutes of terror, which is what they call the curiosity landing, he said it would be six minutes of serenely waiting. And that didn't turn out to be the case, as it was. I thought as well that it was going to all go off without a hitch. I was sitting um, in a meeting at work and we'd had a pre-written story that was ready to go when it landed. And I just was going to stick in a few, oh, look, everybody's happy quotes. Um, And actually that didn't happen at all because we had this signal that was uh, being picked up on a telescope on Earth, and it suddenly disappeared. And then there was a lot of silence, and then there was a lot of 
lack of information from ESA, and it took a good few hours to unravel what had actually happened, which they're only just starting to do, really. So do they know, then, that it has crashed into the surface, just got lost and actually landed fine, but not talking to anyone? Nobody has said the word crashed, but I have a feeling that that they would never in a million years say it, even if they were definitely sure that it had crashed. They have said they don't think it had a soft landing, They have said that there has been no communication from the surface. We know that uh, it didn't go to plan. So it it came in through the atmosphere. It slowed down a huge amount from, I think, 21,000 kilometres an hour down to just a few thousand. Um, It deployed its parachute and released the parachute, but it seemed to have released the parachute a bit early. And at that point, everything went pear-shaped and they don't really know what happened after that. Um, It's thrusters fired, but only for a few seconds rather than 30 seconds. And so it looks very likely that it hit the ground in a way that it was not supposed to. So it's not a crash, it's just an unintentionally fast interaction with the ground resulting in damage? Exactly. Or in in fact, something that I was going to bring up when we talked about uh, buzzwords later, but as they would say, the mission wasn't nominal. Not nominal. Yes. <laughs> nominal is the word that they love to use, which just means everything's fine, everything's what we expected, it's on track. I like their bedside manner, I have to say. Yeah. But they, they're a little bit in denial, I think. So the Director General, Jan Werner, in the press conference this morning, he got asked the direct question at the end of it. So what is the likelihood that it's crashed? And he said the words, I don't understand your question. The mission has been successful in that we have this and that. And it was just a bit bizarre in my book. I think it's quite interesting to watch how these kind of stories play out in the in the wider media because usually, with some exceptions, usually medicine and things, but science is sort of the entertainment, and, and except when something like this happens, and in which case it's not seen as bad news, it's seen as the amusing bit at the end of the news, you know, like, oh, you never guess what blundering scientists have done now. No one would actually say, or, or I'd be surprised if they do, you know, they present this as a, as a genuine attempt that just didn't work. And I think part of it comes from... When things do work, like when, when Rosetta and Filet and all that, you, know, you see all these scenes of champagne and celebrations and we did it. And, and, and the scientists themselves present these as very binary outcomes. So, of course, it's natural, I think, for the wider world when there isn't this great celebration to assume that it's all a massive failure. And I suppose like if the coverage is going to be an event happened and then we all go home, if that's the kind of media's perception, I suppose, of whether it succeeds or whether it's a failure, then no one's really holding anyone accountable for the millions of pounds that they spent doing this and then they lost touch with it. Yeah, I mean, the millions of pounds, I think, would still be well spent if they can figure out in the future how to do this right. So, as I say, there there, there were some instruments on there uh, which we'll never never get to learn. Well, hopefully, maybe we'll at some point. But about about Mars's dust storms, this was going to look at its electric field and try to figure out what causes them and why sometimes they go global and sometimes they don't. But um, hopefully at some point. I think it's always useful to have a reminder that this kind of exploration is is risky and dangerous, you know, because there's been stuff in the papers the last couple of months about sending people to Mars, you know, people are signing up and paying for it as if it's just going to Butlins for a weekend. About half of Mars landing missions don't work out. Um, so NASA has had seven successful missions so far. Um, I'm not sure what that's out of, but uh, nobody else, no other agency, no other nation has landed successfully and operated 
on Mars. And we can't be too harsh on ESA. I mean, if you look at other industries recently, we've had a phone company that only makes phones and can't make a phone that doesn't explode. And how often do you read about car companies which have had to recall thousands of cars because something really obvious breaks? And these people are producing kind of one-off spaceships that fly thousands of miles and then... What did they descend at? What kind of speed did this thing get up to? Yeah, it was tens of thousands of kilometres Something quite ridiculous. I think the thing is, ESA have had so many triumphs recently that people just, including me, I guess, just assumed that they would also succeed at this one. Oh, they jinxed it by saying serenity. Six minutes of less than nominal serenity, as it turned <laughs> yes. out. There's been, um, I suppose, an adequate number of uh, minutes of serenity addressing, uh, certainly in the pages of Nature, Dan, on this draft law that would shake up the UK's science and higher education landscape, serenity is not the way you describe the reaction to the editorial, is it, and the story that you've written about this? I think in general, serenity is not a word that is being used about British politics at the moment, and and certainly not about this particular bill, which, as you say, would kind of overhaul universities and research funding and all sorts of other things. People interested in UK policy are very excited about this, obviously. But people in the kind of wider academic world uh, have also been expressing either support or concern for it. And, um, yeah, Nature's editorial came out quite strongly against the bill in its current form. Well, first of all, give us a little bit more detail on what the bill is trying to introduce, what the law, the draft law proposes. So the background to this is at the moment, most of the funding for UK academic research is channeled through seven separate research councils. And one of the things that this bill is going to do is pull all of those bodies together into one kind of super council um, with a super head who's going to be a very, very, very important person in UK science. And at the same time, it's also going to do some pretty radical overhauling of universities, which proponents say will kind of make them better suited to, uh, to deal with the challenges that universities face and opponents say will amount to a nationalisation of our traditionally very independently minded institutions. Uh, David, the editorial that you uh, published on this was, as Dan mentioned, a little controversial. I think it's it's understandable that opinion is divided because I think it comes down to your faith in how people are going to behave in the future. And of course, we don't know. But what we do know is at the moment that there are certain protections in place to stop certain people in the future from interfering too much in the way our universities are run and, more importantly, what happens at those universities. And I think this bill, uh, from our point of view, removes some of those protections. Now, it could be that, as some of the critics of the editorial say, that, that this is an overreaction. Equally, it could be that it's a legitimate and justified warning of what might happen. I don't think anybody knows for certain, but what we do know for sure now is that at least people are talking about it. Anyone who, say, who can put their hand on the heart and say these changes offer no threat just cannot be telling the truth because you do not know that. And, and, you know, and there are lots of examples in other areas of policy where uh, rules and changes have been brought in and are then used for completely different purposes a few years down the line. Once, you know, it, it, the only way to guarantee there is no political interference is to keep the safeguards that stop it from happening. But is there an ulterior motive likely here or is this just some wording that could eventually be used in a different way to how it's perceived? Well, I think, I think what we said in the editorial was that it's, it's an ideological position. Um, you know, we now have a, a majority conservative government that has no effective opposition and certainly at the moment universities are set up as a 
instrument of, of sort of the state, not as sort of small, nimble, flexible, independent stakeholders, which is probably what someone in the Department of Education would like them to be. So I, I think um, if we knew that there were ulterior motives, we'd be we'd be reporting them and writing about them. I don't think anyone would be foolish enough to to say, you know, this is what we want to do with the universities. An ulterior motive might be a slightly kind of loaded term to use. There's, it's not like there's some sort of evil genius in the government in a back room somewhere. There's no kind of rubbing genius, their hands, <laughs> <laughs> but they're not rubbing their hands together, thinking like, finally, after eight hundred years, we get our hands on the universities. But they've got a kind of very particular vision about where they want things to go, and it's a real open question about whether that is the right thing. So some of the implications of this, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that it would be perhaps easier for private companies um, to start opening their own universities and running them, um, and that research might be more refocused on kind of commercial opportunities and and that sort of thing. I mean, is is there a precedent for that elsewhere that's going well or badly? I think they, they're almost two slightly separate issues, the, the research funding and the university side. So the government has traditionally given money to research councils and given them sort of broad areas to say, we would like some work in this area, but not got into the specifics. Um, and equally, they've had a, a kind of hands-off attitude to universities and said, teach a load of students, please, and left it up to them to decide what courses they want to teach. And the fear is that maybe in both of these areas now there is at least a scope under the wording of the bill for there to be more specific direction given. And people are just worried that being more market driven might not necessarily work for universities. So the idea is to give students more of a say. You know, they are paying a hell of a lot money more money now than they used to, and so um, there's some there's some idea of only being able to increase the amount of money that universities can get in fees with how well the university is doing according to some other metrics. Um, but the it kind of to have it all follow the student. Um, loses a little bit this idea that universities are not just about teaching that individual student with that money that they give to them, but they are some fundamental part of the community that they're in. They provide a whole load of other services. And um, we may lose that uh, just kind of public good that they are if it all becomes driven by this this student market. So we, do, I mean, we don't know that there are these big bad ulterior motives, but we know that at least when it comes to research, the system is working very well at the moment. And the way in which the bill is written, um, it leaves everything very open to interpretation. And I think we, um, since putting out the editorial, there, there was an awful lot of discussion on this topic. But actually, it's now just gone through the committee stage and all of the amendments that were suggested relating to research were turned down by the science minister. So there has been more scrutiny, I guess, than there would have been. But it seems like the government are still just steamrolling this through. I think it is worth saying as well that you don't need to have an evil genius with a terrible motive behind this for it to be a bad idea. There are plenty of examples of terrible damage being done by well-meaning people who didn't have all the facts or people who weren't on top of a situation as much as they thought they were or people who'd had some bad advice or people who just hadn't thought through all the options. And I think that's what we're saying here. I don't think we're really saying that we need to, to fight against some kind of you know dark overlord. And this is why the issue that Lizzie mentioned about these amendments not really being considered is is so important because with the best will in the world, no piece of legislation is perfect when it first appears. That's one of the reasons that we have two different houses to scrutinise this stuff. 
And at a recent press conference where we was where I spoke to people who were supporting and opposing this bill, um, some of the people who were supporting, if you ask them, would you support this even if it wasn't amended, even if some of the changes that people have asked for didn't happen? And they kind of dodge that question and they say, oh, we're sure they'll make amendments. So maybe there will be amendments to this bill, but everyone seems to think there need to be some. And it's a sector that's thrived and arguably helped the UK economy, you know, do well in the course of the last few decades. And so other people will look to the UK and see if it works and see what happens and see what we decide to do and perhaps reflect that elsewhere. Seeing as we're about to talk about buzzwords, we can say it's the jewel in the UK's crown because they often do say that. Someone also said market driven in a really serious way. So let's hope that um, hashtag backchat buzzwords is taken. That's not a buzzword. That means something. Those aren't what I think of as buzzwords. Buzzwords are words that are they look real, but if you poke a finger at them, they just disappear in a puff of sort of semantics. And that was what your editorial was about, wasn't it? Was, it was. It was about the word nexus. And it was about it was pegged to a paper, actually, from some proper social scientists who'd looked at this as a serious issue. They'd looked at the, um, the sustainability area and had analysed the use of this phrase, which, you know, I can't even remember the full phrase, which shows what a good job nexus is as a buzzword, because... Of the phrase, nexus is the only word anyone can ever remember. It's something like the food, water, climate, environment nexus. So, you know, it's, it's, it's where, where all these major and previously quite separate issues intersect or coincide or coexist. And they, sh- they found that the use of this word had gone up dramatically and they interviewed lots of people about what it meant. And, of course, they then wrote quite a perceptive article about the way this was being used and the way it was distorting debate. And so what they said was a buzzword is a word that everybody thinks they know what it means, but no one can actually define it. It's the opposite of what scientists usually get accused of, which is using very, very specific um, pieces of jargon to mean only one thing. To go from buzzword to cliche, I wonder if David's having his cake and eating it, because didn't we publish a few years ago an article in defence of jargon? We did, but those are the same things, aren't they? Isn't defending jargon and criticising buzzwords the same thing? I'm not sure. Aren't buzzwords just bits of jargon that become so widely applied and spread out that they lose their original meaning? I'm not or sure. Any meaning. I think it's like, as, as Kerry said, like jargon can be something where it means something really specific. You just it either can have a different meaning to people who work in science, um, and no one else knows what it means. But buzzwords, yeah, they just, as you said, you poke them and they evaporate, and there is nothing substantial there. And I mean, I think they apply much more in the policy, political world than necessarily in most scientific papers. But in journalism as well, we've got our own sort of set of words that we're supposed to avoid, like the plague. Um, <laughs> thank you. Unless we came- you're writing about... The plague. <laughs> Unless, well, exactly. So plague, don't, which we do sometimes. Don't avoid like the plague until you're writing about the plague. Don't. There's no holy grails unless you're writing about Jesus. No silver bullets unless you're writing about werewolves. And there's some slightly more science-specific ones. There are editors in evolutionary fields at Nature who will be very, very angry with you if you write about a missing link. And recently we've been debating a lot the use of the term three-parent babies, which I think the ship might have sailed on that one. I'm actually just falling into these things now without even trying. But yeah, these are all things that initially they start off kind of maybe being useful and meaning something and then they get twisted or they get so diluted. I sometimes find myself using the word tweak in kind of like a cell biology or a neuroscience context when I don't really, I can't, haven't got enough words to explain exactly how 
they did this modification to change this cell into this cell or, you know, whatever they did to it. Biologists tweaked the but cell the to resemble blood. The more specific you get, the greater the chance of getting it wrong, mm-hmm. which is right. the great thing about scientific journalism is that, you know, some of what looks like brilliant scientific journalism is actually extremely bad. So we used to have this all the time when we were you know, doing stuff at short notice. It was, um, are you sure that this, um, this, this raises some level of, you know, gas or hormone or whatever are you sure it doesn't lower it oh we'll just put change (laughs) or alters well that's the thing the main criteria of your article is to not be wrong number one (laughs) and then hopefully you can achieve many other things around that but like at the very last minute i've seen changes happen again exactly like that where you're just saying well let's put this because we know that's not wrong We'll this put, article we'll is at, nominal. At the nexus, it's nominal at the nexus. I guess, I guess scientists are just like us in many ways. They're just trying to not be wrong and trying to converse as much as they can. Because if they use the full-on jargon, they'd never be able to talk outside of their field. And so they use the word nexus instead. But if five people are using the word nexus, you've probably have got five different meanings. And they are a bit like like the plague, some of these words, because... They they are used and they spread because other people see them being used and they think, oh, well, I'll have a bit of that because it's almost uh, fashionable. Does anyone have any favourites that they haven't mentioned or is there, is, does there exist a list of nature banned words? Oh, well, I did get into trouble, although we had a full and frank discussion about it and I was cleared about a, a columnist that I edited using the word bollocks just as a single word sentence, actually. Not anatomically. Um, no, he was he was using it as a, a sort of a, a statement of disdain, and um, someone complained, and we dedicated a whole meeting to it actually, to the rights and wrongs of printing bollocks. <laughs> In the meeting, were you allowed to use the word, or I used it as often as I could just to make sure <laughs> nobody had missed what we were talking about. And suppose he just figured he couldn't be disdain. That was the way he summed up his disdain, and no other disdainful word would do. Or partly that, and partly because it's. A funny silly word but actually there's a long and and actually legal argument about the use of the word bollocks which if you google it i think goes back to the the sex pistols album and it went to court whether it was just a a rude slang term for testicles or was it was whether it was legitimate expression of disdain or um whatever the word um and 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 if you look at if you look it up in the dictionary they are both in there so you can, you know, legitimately use bollocks to mean disdain or whatever that definition would be because it's in the Oxford English Dictionary. I'd love to encourage listeners to write to us if they have a problem with the word bollocks having been off- <laughs> so often used in this podcast so that we may have another meeting on this same theme, David, and you can be our chair. Well, you'd have to use it in the correct context, obviously. You couldn't well, we say, have been. You couldn't say that is a load of old because that's not referring to it and that just means that's a slang term for rubbish but if you were to say is that true bollocks it is that's absolutely fine it's been educational hasn't it has it bollocks (laughs) (laughs) um okay so unless anyone has anything else to add um i'm going to forecast that next month's back chat some people are going to be very excited about talking to me about the election we've saved you that for this month but that's going to be next month all that remains is to thank my correspondents david adam lizzie gibney and dan cressy for joining me the weekly nature podcast this week features two election related packages if you can't wait for next month's back chat so tune in to find out how people try to predict who will win elections and the scientists 
those who are voting for Trump. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Find us on iTunes, leave us a review, tweet us at Nature Podcast, or send us a nice old-fashioned email to podcast at nature.com. That's what Magnus Erhinger did. He's a biology and chemistry teacher in Lund in Sweden, and he got in touch to say he sets the podcast as homework for his classes, and then he has his students present science news themselves. We'd like to apologise to that class for <laughs> this week's episode. Thank you to Magnus and thanks to you all for listening. Till next time, I'm Kerry Smith. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.